Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Imagine receiving a gift of 53 works by major artists, including Toulouse-Lautrec, Gauguin, and Degas. That gift became reality for the High Museum recently, Later this hour, Claudia Einicke, the High Curator of European Art, will tell us what it means for the museum to acquire that bequest from the collection of Irene and Howard Stein. Last Thursday would have been Toni Morrison's 89th birthday. We'll listen back to an interview with the author's friend, the filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders. His documentary, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, came out just a few months before she died in 2019. The film is an outstanding celebration of her legacy. First, from its start, the Center for Puppetry Arts has honored the background and stories of many peoples. That diversity is central to the World of Puppetry Museum. And the Center furthers inclusivity outreach with its programming for Black History Month. Joining us now are Sara Bormenko, director of the Digital Learning Program, actor Brian Harrison, also from the Center's Digital Learning Department, and actor-educator puppeteer Jamika Collins. Welcome to City Lights. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thrilled to have you. How can puppets be a great way to not only interact with children, but to teach them about Black history and culture? Um, well, I find that um, puppets are just a universal language, and we do a lot of education in our digital learning department. And we found over the years that puppetry is just one avenue to really have students connect 
with something and help with educating them. And we created a program when the pandemic started, we were thinking that we needed a little bit more of a way to have more multicultural programming. And Brian took the lead and created our program that we're offering now during February, Stories of Color. And he really took it on how puppets can really teach stories and um, how song can be incorporated. And it really touches, it's something that children are familiar with and um, teachers all over use puppetry. So we really feel blessed to have puppets as an avenue to talk about kind of celebration of culture because you find puppets in all cultures. One of the folk tales you'll bring to life is about Anansi the spider. What can you tell us about Anansi? If you're not familiar with Anansi, uh, he is a, a West African folk tale. Um, and Anansi the spider is, is sometimes a hero in his stories and sometimes a trickster. And these folk tales in general are stories that have a moral or a lesson at the end. So we, we tend to learn something from Anansi. When he's a hero, we get to root Anansi on and we get to root for Anansi. And when he is being a trickster, we get to see Anansi being something that we can recognize that we might not want to do to others. Um, so we can use Anansi and really take a lesson from what he does or doesn't do. And so he's, he's instrumental to the, the culture that is in uh, West Africa, in Ghana. Um, and just a small part of that, that culture as well. Yeah, and these stories about Anansi have spread from Africa to the Americas to not far from us, the Gullah communities in, in South Carolina, where Anansi is sometimes called Aunt Nancy. While you were explaining about him, I thought of Cocopelli. I thought of Coyote. There are tricksters, mischief makers common to many cultures. Why do you think they resonate well with children today? I touched on it a little bit earlier is that we can see ourselves in those characters or we can see someone we know or a situation that we've been in or heard about. We can see how uh, applicable these situations are. So even though it may be hyperbolic for the storytelling purposes, we can still feel the nugget of truth in these stories. And of course, children, they gravitate to these fantastical characters um, who can do things that maybe we can't. So it allows them to imagine these fanciful situations while also grounding it in things that happen in real life. When we were speaking earlier about why puppets are ideal for teaching about Black history, teaching about other cultures or ancient cultures and tales passed down. What came to mind in uh, teaching children about Black history through puppetry is the way the friendliness, the endearing qualities of a puppet can soften some of the harder lessons that have to be conveyed if children are to learn about painful parts of history. I remember when Ray Charles and Kermit sang 
it's not easy being green. And, you know, perhaps this is not the most profound example of a study in sensitivity or education, but it was profound enough for me decades ago when, yes. to stay in my mind. What, what are your thoughts about that? That story just reminded me a lot of one of the shows we offer at the Center for Puppetry Arts digitally right now, which is Ruth and the Green Book. And mm-hmm. I watched that show digitally around June, I believe, of this uh, last year. And even though it was digital, it was so moving to see this story that's a little bit tough to hear and tough to learn about, about, you know, uh, Black people not being able to travel freely, uh, not being able to stay at hotels or go to restaurants, um, and having this green book that showed us where we could go, where there were nice people. And I just thought, this is wonderful because kids it's hard for them sometimes to understand things that happened a long time ago. And with puppets, like you mentioned, it softens it. It helps them to understand, you know, sometimes people aren't very nice, but when you're looking at a puppet, it brings a little bit of joy, even while you're learning about something that's not so full of joy. Um, Even as an adult watching that show, I was moved by it, but also I felt, it just made me a little bit happier to see that these are puppets and these are puppets that look like me. They had my skin tone and my hair. So I felt very seen while watching Ruth and the Green Book. So I hope that continues with the offering of this show this month. I second everything Jimmy just said. I, I completely agree. That's exactly the first thing I thought of with what's Ruth and the Green Book about how it, it tackles a, a tough conversation and the puppets do make it more palatable. I think of a different show that isn't race related, but Charlotte's Web, a show that we do here, which deals with life and death and love and friendship. And, you know, all of those things might be a little heady for a five or six year old, but those puppets make it Uh, a lot easier to understand those concepts. Yes, and sometimes even a five or six-year-old can comprehend more than we may give them credit. Oh, certainly. You mentioned the virtual platform, Jamaica, because of the pandemic, these events are virtual. What kind of interactive components or activities can children look forward to doing at home during these workshops? Oh, well, I know that we have been offering lots of things through digital learning, which Brian is the head of. There was also recently an event that we were a part of with the King Center that was really fun. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece uh, wrote a book about her uncle, And they invited the Center for Puppetry Arts to have a puppet on the Zoom call to help read the story. And it was so much fun. There were over, I think, 300 participants. And it's even though we couldn't be in the theater, it was still very moving to see all of these kids focused on a book and seeing how everyone has been adapting to the changes with the pandemic. And seeing how kids are still learning, uh, one of the comments that uh, I think she was like five years old um, after the book, she asked during the Q&A, she asked my puppet, how come black and white didn't like each other? 
And it was such an innocent question and such a, it was, she was just so cute. And we all melted and just explained, well, that's sometimes when, you know, that's what used to happen, but thank goodness it doesn't happen anymore. We all can be friends and oh my goodness, that alone was just so powerful. So even with having things virtual, it's been, I think, really great for some kids. Sarah, as director of the Digital Learning Program, you've helped to usher in a new era at the Center for Puppetry Arts. Yeah, so um, to answer, to go along with what Jamika said about being in the virtual world, the set, we were lucky enough that our department actually started back in 1998. And we worked with the Atlanta Zoo to create our programs along with what teachers' needs were. So what we found being in this new realm of digital um, for teachers and things like that, our programs are built on the concept of we don't just want to be basically a talking head. There's lots of interaction with the students to keep them engaged. So um, along with most of our programs, they're based in curriculum. Um, Our Stories of Color and our Anansi the Spider that we're offering are, are curriculum based. But with those, we have the students retell stories. So there's lots of movement. We use kinesthetics. They also get a chance to build a puppet along with us. And so at the end of the program, not only did they interact with us in different ways, we'll have the puppets do things once they're created along with us. They also have that puppet to take on and they can recreate the story on their own they'll be able to remember and retell what happened in this story. So all of these different aspects really help keep the students engaged. I know as an adult, a lot of people are, you know, we're meeting online and I hear lots of my friends who have meetings online. And I know that I don't necessarily just want somebody to be talking to me. I want to be interactive in some way. And that's how our programs are created. And Brian does an extremely wonderful job with his stories of color, being able to to do that. And he also incorporates lots of music and the storytelling that he does. Jamika, you are a professional actor as well as an educator, and you also have a background in mental health studies, I read. How can workshops such as those being presented during Black History Month help children cope with the challenges they've faced this past year? Oh, I think it could be a really, really big uh, help. I have a niece who is six years old who is old enough to understand when things in the world are happening, but maybe not quite understand them, but they still hurt, you know, if you can tell that something's not right. So I feel like with these workshops, she and other kids will be able to digest what's happening um, and maybe it will uplift them and bring a little bit of hope and joy. So many kids are at home and, you know, they maybe want to be at school and with everything going on, especially this past year, I think these workshops just bring some joy and some fun, which is what I love about puppets. Kids definitely, while they seem like they, you know, they're younger, they do understand a lot. And it could be troubling for some kids, uh, especially being at home. So I, I think these programs are great, if anything, just to 
you know, shake it up a little bit. Uh, it's not just schoolwork. It's fun. There's puppets. You get to build your own puppet. So I think that is really a great thing about the digital programs that are being offered. Mm. Brian, you will moderate a panel that features Jamika. She will be sharing her experiences as an African-American artist. And I was wondering what each of you hope to convey to young people who are curious about pursuing a career in the arts. For myself, one of the things that I, I want to convey is that it's, it's out there for you, it's possible, specifically as a puppeteer artist, because puppeteers, generally speaking, are invisible, right? We're underneath the playboard or we're behind a screen or something like that, so you don't see us. And you might see us towards the, at the end of the show, maybe for the curtain call, but generally puppeteers are invisible and black or people of color puppeteers are much rarer. So I think it's really helpful to shine a light during this month and uh, present several puppeteers, actors, artists who are thriving in the community, who are doing more than one thing and being a good example of how to be a good artist and, and being a thriving Black artist in Atlanta. So I think that's really important to see that representation. As a young person, there are so many other ways of thinking or so many other things that you could be, and a puppeteer could be one of them. I definitely agree. Since I started uh, at the Center for Puppetry Arts, I noticed that you know, of course, there's not very many puppeteers of color, but there are also not very many female puppeteers of color. I think I have not met any other female puppeteer of color in person. I, I've been, you know, online looking at people like, oh, there's, yay, somebody like me. Uh, so I, I just feel like it's great to just, just to be a part of it so that people can see that, you know, we're here, especially because uh, one of my experiences doing Tall Tales a couple of years ago, um, I was playing the role of Bunny and you know, all the kids assumed that it was a boy bunny. And so when I popped up uh, after the show and they saw that I was a girl, first off, it was like, whoa, she's a girl. Like, <laughs> oh, hold up. This is a black girl too. Hey, look, she looks like me. So I think just oh. those interactions and realizations just you know, bring a little spark. Like maybe next time they're watching puppets on TV, they might think, I wonder who's doing that. Maybe they look like me. And that just makes me happy. <laughs> Puppeteer Jamika Collins with the Center for Puppetry Arts, Sara Bormenko and Brian Harrison. He'll moderate the panel, A Conversation with Black Theater Artists. The online discussion will be this Friday. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Though revolutionary in the 19th century, Impressionism may well be the most popular art form today. The High Museum recently acquired 53 works by artists, including Toulouse-Lautrec, Edgar Degas, and Paul Gauguin. The gift is part of a major bequest from the Atlantic collectors Irene and Howard Stein. Claudia Einicke is curator of European art for the High Museum. She's with us now via Zoom. Claudia, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's always good to be speaking with you. Please tell us a bit about the Steins and how they came to amass such a fantastic collection of works. I understand that they began collecting in the 1970s, and they very quickly discovered Toulouse-Lautrec as their favorites, and then after a few years really focused almost exclusively on his posters and lithographs and other prints that he made. And over the years, they put together this amazing, and because of their focus, this unusually rich collection of Toulouse-Lautrec prints. Yeah, the gift includes 31 works by Toulouse-Lautrec. Yes, and among those, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec was a very prolific artist and he produced a lot of prints and wonderful images that have become in our minds the sort of touchstones for the late 19th century Belle Epoque. And the Steins collection really includes the very iconic images that we all know from calendars and tea towels and mouse pads, images of... So the famous cabaret performers of the time as La Goulou, Aristide Briand, Louis Fuller, the American performer, he was a poster designer and his posters advertised the most popular entertainments of the day, the cabarets and dance clubs and so on and so forth. Indeed, the poster of Jane Avril is... Outstanding. How does it exemplify Toulouse-Lautrec's style? Well, first of all, I, as you can see in any of his works, he really defines in our minds the epitome of poster design, graphic design, which means he works with flat blocks of color, simple outlines. It's about shape and two-dimensional design more than creating the illusionistic, three-dimensional, naturalistic work that, you know, we expect from photography or from academic art. Toulouse-Lautrec had a really keen eye for seeing and then representing some of the salient features of a person. So it's almost like 
a caricature without necessarily meaning to make fun of the person's uh, features, but in the sense that when you, when you draw a caricature, you overemphasize or you emphasize the most salient features of the person. And if you look at the portrait of Jane Avril, which you just mentioned, the woman is extremely skinny because this portrait that we know so well is the last one that Toulouse-Lautrec made of, of Jane Avril. And um, so she was at that time not in the best of health. Also, the, the, the lines, the outlines are undulating, sort of capturing her sinuous movements on stage as she sang and moved about. Hmm. Let's talk about Martin Deschardins sculpture. Louis XIV on horseback. This piece is gorgeous. Can you give us some background on the artist? This equestrian statue um, by Martin Desjardins, who is a Flemish artist, is a really amazing piece because there are only very few casts of this monument in miniature almost, not quite miniature, but a small version of a monument. Desjardins was, uh, had the commission to make a full-life equestrian statue of Louis XIV, and this did not come to pass, but uh, he instead then uh, issued this smaller tabletop size uh, version of his design. And the one we received in this gift is of extremely high quality. All the details are perfectly realized and the horse and its rider are extremely lifelike and dynamic and beautiful. And an important aspect that that tells you about the skill of the artist is that when you look at it, uh, you see that the horse is balanced on its two hind legs. And just to imagine uh, in terms of building that sculpture, to be able to balance the masses of the figures in such a way that it actually can stand on its hind legs and doesn't immediately topple over or want to break. That's really something that is of the highest quality in making these, these sculptures. It is magnificent. And the bequest includes other great works of sculpture. What are a few of your favorite new works, Claudia? I'm very interested in the two sculptures by um, Charles Cordier. Charles Cordier was an artist, but he also was an ethnographer. And in fact, he began his career working for the Ethnography Museum in Paris, and he was sent out into the world uh, to study different ethnic groups in Africa and the Middle East and so on. So from our perspective today, um, this is somewhat questionable and it, but it, it, because it is clearly uh, a project from colonial times. The idea of, of different races and different uh, ethnic groups have a long, has a long history and it's undergoing finally um, some uh, important revisions these days. 
So uh, Cordier went to Africa and the Middle East to uh, record and make sculptures, portraits of these ethnic, uh, of different ethnic types and different uh, ethnic populations. Now these two sculptures that are included in this gift are of uh, two young women and they're very specifically titled a young uh, Greek woman the other one is a young Abyssinian woman. So it is about specific populations that he's trying to depict. But at the same time, or very quickly, Cordier personally um, added to this ethnographic mission of his work, um, his personal mission, as he stated, that he wanted to create these portraits, these, these sculptures, to show Europeans that beauty can have very many different forms and that uh, representatives of other races, other ethnic groups are equally beautiful as Europeans. They just look different, but, but they have their, they have, they certainly um, are beautiful. And so these uh, two sculptures will allow us together with a couple of other, other objects we already have in the uh, collection to address actually the, the issue of Orientalism and art in the context of colonialism. Ah, yes. This is a new direction for the high, isn't it? It is and it isn't. Um, I mean, in, you know, in, in art history and in curatorial practice, the issue of colonialism and the problematic uh, questions around Orientalism have been under debate and under critique for many, many years now. At the High Museum, there hasn't really been in the European collection enough work from, for the curator to really address it. You know, if, if you don't have any works that come out of that movement, you, you can't really talk about it. It's as, as if you wanted to say, well, we want to talk about Impressionism, but we don't have a single Impressionist painting, that kind of thing. So um, with, with these two sculptures and another uh, sculpture that was also given by the Steins but a number of years ago by Carrier Belleuse, a terracotta of what he called an uh, Algerian woman, and a painting by an Orientalist painter, uh, Fromentin, showing Arabs traveling across the land. We now have a group that we are going to put together and uh, really also use a, a text panel to address and, and talk about some of the issues um, related to, to colonialism and Orientalism. It's, it's not a new direction, but it's finally in European uh, art, at least we can finally address a, a little bit of, of that problematic. One more great thing about the gift. The Stein's gift includes two different works by Edgar Degas. Study for the Fallen Jockey is one. What's remarkable about this piece? Well, first of all, so the Fallen Jockey is the title of an oil painting that, that he did. Um, the, this sheet of, of 
pencil drawings um, is in preparation for it. And it's a really an amazing and interesting, strange painting because it actually shows uh, the jockey who had an accident who was thrown off of, you know, uh, during a jump, during a steeplechase uh, race. And he's lying on the ground and clearly injured, if not worse. And so um, this study for, for the painting is um, also very interesting because it actually shows four different scenes, as it were, during the horse race. And one of them is indeed showing the horse that has collapsed or is, is, has fallen, is, is basically head on the ground. It's, it's just nose diving and the jockey falling off it. So that's the most closely related to the theme of the final painting. But then there are also a couple of different scenes where, where you see a horse sort of sailing very easily across, across its, uh, its obstacle. So it gives you a little bit a different, almost as if you were uh, witnessing different uh, moments and different occurrences in, in such a race. Almost an action film. Yeah, 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 definitely. The bequest also includes a work by the American artist and friend of Degas, Mary Cassatt. Would you describe the work that will now be a permanent part of the high collection? Yeah, it shows Lydia Cassatt, Mary Cassatt's sister, and it's described Lydia looking off to the left. So it's really capturing Lydia at a sort of private moment. It's not a big action. It's not a a dramatic moment. It's just as the impressionists will want to do, capturing a, a very mundane, everyday moment that has its own validity uh, from simply that uh, point of view. And Mary Cassatt is best known for um, her paintings usually show women at home, women with their children sometimes, uh, women at home or in the theater, but doing feminine things, having tea, reading a book, uh, watching a play. This etching, it's it's a black and white etching print by Cassatt um, just shows her sister in that kind of context. Hmm. When will we be able to view these new works? The Stein Gallery will be reinstalled in during the first two weeks of March. And so after that, we will see 10 new sculptures incorporated into the display that, that's there already. The works on paper, we will be showing sort of an average of four at a time, because as you know, works on paper can't be shown for uh, a long time or else they would fade and deteriorate very, very quickly. So we've devised sort of a plan to show four at a time and rotate them every uh, every six months so that after four or five years, basically, we start over. Um, The the first four that uh, I'm intending to show, I'm going to start with a nice uh, Toulouse-Lautrec splash. So there will be four major uh, Toulouse-Lautrec 
posters on view, major and large and spectacular and beautiful. Exciting way to start. Claudia, what is the importance of this gift to the high? Certainly, um, it gives the high one of the largest, most comprehensive collections of Toulouse-Lautrec's work in the U.S., numerically, also qualitatively, because Mr. Stein had a really good uh, eye for quality. So all the works on paper, for example, are of the highest quality in terms of condition, you know, nothing faded, cropped or damaged. They're all really pristine and, and gorgeous. And similarly with the sculptures, you know, the Steins had already previously at different uh, times and different points given and added to our collection of 19th century sculpture. And so um, I can't give you a number, but again, adding seven 19th century sculptures, the other three are from the 18th century, really increases the number and the variety of works and artists we can we can present and represent in, in the European collection significantly. I think there are few museums of our uh, size and scope that have that many different um, artists represented. So I think amongst my colleagues, you know, curators, museum people who pay attention to those kinds of things, um, they will sit, sit up and remember the fact that we have so many of 19th century bronzes and other sculptures as well. Well, it is very exciting. Congratulations to you and the museum for this acquisition. I, I would I would congratulate Atlanta to have such great collectors and such great donors and philanthropists because after all, yes, I get to work with these sculptures and yes, the museum can say, well, we have one of the premier Toulouse-Lautrec uh, collections in the country. But really what's most important is that Atlanta, Atlantans have this kind of collection and museum. Claudia Einecke is the curator of European art for the High Museum. To view some images of works the High received from the Irene and Howard Stein collection, visit our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last Thursday would have been Toni Morrison's 89th birthday. Shortly before she passed away in August of 2019, a wonderful documentary about her was released. Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am tells her life story and shares her own accounts of the rise from editor to Pulitzer Prize-winning author and Nobel laureate. Before the documentary premiered, I spoke with the filmmaker Timothy Greenfield Sanders. In her interview with you, 
the author talks about her given name, Chloe Wofford, and her pen and married name, Toni Morrison. And she describes it as a way of dividing one's life, the public persona and uh, what she says is the one who doesn't do documentaries. <laughs> Would you please tell us about your relationship with Toni Morrison, which goes back a few decades? It does. I first met uh, Toni in 1981, uh, 38 years ago. She walked into my East Village studio. I was a young photographer and I was doing her for the cover of the Soho News, and she was smoking a pipe. And we became friends at that moment, really. Uh, I remember someone said to me the other day, what, did, what do you remember from that? And I said, well, it's so long ago, but I remember how confident she was hmm. that, that often as a photographer, you know, what you do is you, you read your subject the minute they walk in the room. You're kind of sensing, are they nervous? And there's an anxiety to being photographed. And Tony didn't have any of that. She was just ready to go and easy, and I remember that very well. And that confidence comes through in the film, but not as arrogance or self-importance. She just rather matter-of-factly mentions at one point in the movie, well, I write well or I'm a good <laughs> writer. And I thought, yeah, I would say so. And that must be why on camera she seems so at ease and, and as though she's completely enjoying being your subject because you go back nearly 40 years. I guess you achieve that trust. That's exactly right. And, and Tony... Uh enjoyed the interviews. I think, you know, I think for her, the issue when I first asked her to do this film, and she's very private, she doesn't do biographies, doesn't, hasn't written an autobiography, but she somehow allowed me to do this because I think she felt I could, I could. And she, uh, you know, I, I, we did, we shot those at her house and we set it up as a studio there, the studio look of my portraiture, but she enjoyed it so much, and it was a chance for her to really tell her story. I loved her remarks about the Nobel Prize ceremony and that the Swedes really know how to throw a party. <laughs> You're not expecting it in the film because she's, she's very serious, and she says, I like the Nobel. And you're thinking, <laughs> what does that mean? And it's just because they know how to throw a party. <laughs> I love it. Early in the film, she explains why reading and writing were acts of defiance, or reading and writing was an act of defiance in her family, that her grandparents weren't allowed to read. It was against the law. What effect did knowing that have upon her? You know, we opened the film with that because Tony reminds us how much it means to be able to read and to be able to learn and to be educated and how much that was kept from African Americans in those days, particularly her, even, even as far back as her great-grandfather. It's, it's a stunning thing to realize, really. You don't imagine that, but it was a way to control people. And even in her house, the importance of books from 
her parents was on display early on to her. I think she she understood how much it meant that she was reading a lot, and they they encouraged her. I remember not in the film, but her fa- she was telling me about her father really encouraged her and made her feel like she was special, mm. and that was a you know that's what you want from a parent. Indeed, some reviewers said Toni Morrison was limiting herself in only writing about black people. Would you talk about her response to that criticism? She mentions James Baldwin talking about the little white man sitting on his shoulder. I thought that was a great part of the film. She does. Tony, you know, one of her big themes and something that we confront very early in the film is the, the, the white male gaze, which is that everything is white-centric, everything comes from a point of view of whiteness. And she talks about the little white man that's sitting on your shoulder looking at everything you do, judging you, you know, critiquing you, controlling you. And she says, once you knock him off, you're free. And, and that was what she did. And so she didn't write from a point of view of, of four whites. She wrote you know, from a very, very specific point of view of African-Americans at a time when nobody was really doing that. Hmm. I often go back to this quote from Lorraine Hansberry because I love it so much. She once said, in response to something similar, she said, the universal is in the specific. Mm, I would have thought, yeah, and I would have thought, you know, a decade and a half later, that Toni Morrison wouldn't have received that kind of criticism, but but she did. I think that there's always, you know, disapproval of black women, particularly in America. In the film we show when she wins the Nobel, and this is such an exciting, incredible moment for everyone. And the next day, the Washington Post has this nasty article with these awful, awful comments about her work and trying to marginalize her and make her, you know, not important. It's politically correct, things like that. One of them even says, I hope she learns to write better books. Oh, as if this wasn't (laughs) a profound impact on American literature and, you know, a badge of honor for us. Well, yes, so much for them. Oprah Winfrey says in the film that with her words on the page, Toni Morrison teaches readers to take pain and learn to love through it. She's such an uplifting figure and a voice of truth in our society. Timothy, in what ways did her body of work influence how you made this documentary? I'm a reader of Tony, but more more importantly, I think I wanted the world to see all the sides of Tony Morrison. I wasn't going to make a film critiquing each book and going through each book. I think that would be wouldn't be what I. It's really not what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do is show how she was an editor at Random House and brought to the table many, many, many important authors who were marginalized, people like Tony Cade Bambara, and she put a book out with Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali. I mean, she did amazing things in a very white building. The Random House building in those days was quite white male. And, you know, Tony was a single mother at the same time, raising two boys. 
and she was teaching and, and all of this at the, while she was writing her books. So it's just an astounding level of competence and talent on, on every level that, that she, she demonstrated. You also feature her editor, Robert Gottlieb, who is revered in publishing, who's revered among literati. What does he reveal about Tony as an editor? She talks about when she started out at uh, Random House and they discovered that she had written a book, <laughs> The Bluest Eye, mm-hmm. published by a different publisher. They decided they needed to bring her into the company and they put her at Knopf because that was the sort of high-end literary side and she was working what they called Little Random uh, as an editor. And they assigned Robert Gottlieb to her. They became very close friends. He edited all of her books but one. And, you know, he's one of the greatest editors of all time. He works with Robert Caro, did all the, the Path to Power books and the Lyndon Johnson and, you know, remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, so we wanted Gottlieb to, to talk to us. And unfortunately, things get left on the cutting room floor. We have a wonderful sequence for the DVD about commas. <laughs> how they fought over commas, <laughs> Tony and Robert Gottlieb. So uh, she'd give him one, and he'd, you know, she'd say, I don't want this one, but I'll give you one over here. Oh, how funny. Well, beautiful artwork appears in the film, works by Jacob Lawrence and Romir Bearden, to name two. I know that you are an accomplished visual artist and fine art photographer yourself. Would you tell us about the imagery you selected to complement the dialogue in the film? You know, as as a white man making a film about a black woman, I, I tried to bring in as much uh, from the African-American community as possible. And one of the ways, aside from the opening by Micheline Thomas, and the, the incredible music, you know, from Catherine Bostick was to bring in fine art artists, uh, painters, to bring their work into it. You know, uh, Elizabeth Catlett and Charles White and uh, Lorna Simpson, Faith Ringgold, Carrie James Marshall. All of these people, some are friends of mine because I was a photographer of the art world for many years. And we, what we did here, we, I've never seen in a documentary, we really are cutting to paintings not so much to illustrate, but to give you a feeling of what's going on and what's being said. And it was very powerful. We we started to do it and, and thought it would work and then got very into it. <laughs> oh. What painting can we put here? What painting there? But it's it's an unusual part of the film. Jacob Lawrence, for example, we used his great migration paintings, which, which are masterpieces, to illustrate kind of Tony's family leaving Alabama and moving to Ohio. It's very effective, really breathtaking. In a recent essay, you wrote, as a portrait photographer, I find it fascinating how people see themselves in photos I take. When Tony and I go over the pictures after a shoot, she's very clear about which ones she thinks is the best one. It's not always the best one or the most flattering, but it's always the one that somehow feels like it will connect with other people. Would you say that is her essence? 
I would. You know, she's so um, I think aware of how she is, how she projects herself in a sense. And I've been shooting her for many years. And it's it's uh, one of the great faces as well to shoot. I love shooting Tony. Uh, but I think it also goes back to that confidence, you know, that a lot of people are so insecure about their image. Oh, I don't look so good. Uh, well, you know, this, that. And I always say you'll look, you'll love this picture in 10 years. But Tony <laughs> understands it right now. Mm-hmm. And she understands it's going to work as a way to kind of let people into who she is. Director Timothy Greenfield Sanders. His documentary... Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, is streaming on Hulu. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.